shortly. Welcome, everybody, to the Haunted Hacker podcast number. Dia, what do you want to give it? 417. 417. And before the show, she let me know that was her lucky number. Maybe yes. she'll tell us about that later. <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's been a busy week. Uh, it's been a busy new year. Um, and thankfully, no incident responses since last year. Knock on wood. A um, little bit of news. I'll be speaking at TechStrong Predict, recording that session uh, this week. And I will be um, speaking with Chris Roberts, Luke McComey, and Mike Weber for the Tuesday Morning Grind in February, which just came to fruition today. Um, so it looks like that's a go. Uh, other than that, not a whole lot. Um, expected some bad weather, snow. Um, I'm sure more waves of Omicron. Uh, so sit tight and be safe. Uh, so today we have Dia. And she's from Microsoft, one of my favorite tech giants that keeps me employed. Um, so why don't you tell us about yourself and, and kind of your background? You have a really unique background um, and kind of your journey and, and how you got to cyber. And thanks for being on the show as well. It's, been, it's, it's oh, a real yeah. pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Thank you for reaching out. That was uh, actually kind of a nice surprise um, that you were interested. So that's kind of neat. Um, um, I do have a really interesting background, and I think it speaks to the kinds of various backgrounds that we need in cybersecurity. Um, I started out, I'm going to actually go way back to where I started. Um, so I started, I was born as Vidya Chandrasekhar, and my name Vidya means knowledge and wisdom in Sanskrit. So it was put into me, it was programmed into me from a very young age that I was going to be a continuous lifelong learner. And that's a good thing because uh, that actually is what set me on this track. Um, as I was growing up, I was in a dance family that's similar to a military family, but with a little more, um, you know, of the kind of mental anguish of having to be judged by everyone when you're on stage, which is great. Um, <laughs> and then um, I think I... Uh, all of the students of my mom's uh, dance school, which is the oldest dance school in the United States uh, that teaches classical Indian dance. It started back in the late 60s. Um, I think everybody walks away with two things. One, we know how to improvise. And one, we know how to choreograph. And I think those two things are very valuable skills in life because you're always gonna have those spontaneous moments where you have to make a quick decision. And once you make that decision, sometimes you just have to MacGyver everything together to make it work. Um, and sometimes, especially in incident response, it's all choreography. It's like, who does what? What information do we need? What resources do we need? What's the order of operations? How do we get things out there? Oh, the customer's joining the call. Okay, now let's make sure we follow the script, right? So a lot of that is very similar to choreography. Um, and I'm really blessed that I had that background from the time I was kind of basically born. Um, uh, growing up then I got into, you know, a few different things, um, dabbled in beauty pageants, won a few of those. Uh, then I uh, became a really good dancer. I mean, I'm, I'm really happy that I was able to prove myself while I was still um, able to. Um, I danced uh, uh, 48 hours and then 72 hours to break my world record. And it was all solo dancing with live orchestras performing 
along with me. And it was all done at the Barthia Temple in Troy, Michigan. I'm a Detroit girl. And so it was a really special time back then. Um, unfortunately, by the second time, when I did the second one, I was raising funds and awareness about um, heart health. And so it was um, money that I was raising for the American Heart Association. My father had just passed away from a couple of heart attacks and a stroke. And so knowing about, you know, what those root causes are that cause ailment is another thing that I think that became useful to me in my cyber career. Like you always need to try and delve into what those root causes are and how do we actually address those and prevent them if possible before we even get there, right? So that became a passion of mine. Um, and then, um, you know, I'm, I was in television by then. I was working in TV. That was my first job out of college. I went to journalism school and uh, graduated with an award, um, did journalism and peace and complex studies. I have to say the best thing I learned was from there was from uh, a teacher I had who was also a journalist, Armand Gebert. He, mm-hmm. um, he taught us that, you know, it's not enough to just spit out what you learn. It's really important to go back double check, find multiple sources, verify what you, what you think, you know, um, and then, you know, to really be thorough and accurate when you're communicating with others. And I think that's, again, another very lucky thing that happened to me that I learned from him and I, I take with me. Um, yeah, I, I have to say it's been a bunch of really great teachers and then great mentors to get me where I am. Cause it was never like, you know, I mean, this was back in the eighties, right? I couldn't have been like, I want to be an incident response person right back in the eighties. Like that wasn't even a thing on my radar as, you know, a dancing girl from Detroit. So um, I think over time it was just one experience after another as computers started to become part of our lives. Uh, You know, I remember we had to build a machine at home you know, all the little things that we learned, oops, you can't do it that way, right? All that ends up becoming part of what you learn about how things work. It's not just something you read about or people tell you, it's like legitimately you've connected things yourself. So I think all that was really valuable. But when I decided to make the shift from non-tech to tech, that was an interesting thing too. It actually happened consistent with my... Uh, second world record. So I was working for this amazing company, Sintel. Um, Amazing because I just really loved the people there and the opportunities that they gave me. And um, I was working back then uh, as a recruiter. And I think I chose that because I wanted to figure out like, what is this? What are all the things you can do in tech, right? Like there's so many choices. Like you can't just be like, everybody I talked to had different buzzwords. And I was like, what are all those things? So I basically used my journalism hat and asked a whole bunch of questions and learned a whole lot of things and uh, wound up as a PM and, uh, you know, eventually wound up as a PM somewhere. And as I was working on a project there, we had an incident where, um, you know, I'd been working for a little while traveling around from city to city. And uh, I was in New Jersey at the time. There's this great guy I was working with. And then all of a sudden I got an email that was titled, I love you. And I was like, oh God, did I send the wrong signals? What, what was that? And then, as you know, now. I love <laughs> you, was, Byron. Yes. <laughs> um, and that, of course, opened the door for me to start looking at this a little more, you know, like um, what, what are the ways in which we need to protect people and companies and, and um, 
defend them from these kinds of, of things that really get out of hand quickly. Um, so I've been really uh, fortunate that way, you know, I mean, I've been affected by a few things. I think that makes security a calling and a passion more than um, a job and an industry that I work in or even a career. And I think the reasons probably go back to like um, my besties when I was 13, 14, 12, 13, 14, they used to come down from Toronto and stay with us, you know, for the whole summer. And we pretended we were cousins. We used to hang out. We were four girls, five girls, and um, we would all dance and sing and everything. And then they got on a plane to go to India for the, for the um, winter break. And I think it was winter break. No, it was in August. They actually, I think it was August. Yeah. Um, but they got on a plane to go to India and I didn't get to go. Um, and then the, the, plane blew up over Cork County, Ireland. It was the oh, first wow. terrorist oh. attack in Canada on a plane. Yeah. Um, it was the Air India Kanishka incident. And I think it affected me because I just wanted to do something in life where whatever I did had to be meaningful and it had to be something where nobody else would go through all those things that I had to feel after I lost them. Right. And I know that we can't prevent people from experiencing loss. Um, but anything we can do to, to do preventive measures, to try and defend people from not just losing their lives, but also it's really hard when you lose property, you know, um, someone steals your car, someone, you know, takes money out of your bank accounts and steals your identity. It's really hard. It's it, the same kind of, um, I guess the, the coping mechanisms and that whole, the stages of loss that you go through. I think all of that is very similar. And, you know, even just the shock factor when you find out something like that has happened, it's very hard on every human being. Sure. And so I think it's become a goal of mine to try and do whatever possible to reduce that kind of feeling for as many people as possible. And probably why I'm at Microsoft, because I chose it. I left for a short time in between. I came right back because it's just got this big footprint and there's so many people, so many different, um, you know, enterprises and industries and their families and, and everybody that's connected to Windows in one way or another or to Xbox or to any of the services that we offer. Like, I think it really makes a difference that I can be here and do something. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And you touch on a lot of things that, that really resonate with me. Um, you know, the, the fact of, wanting to learn and lifelong learner. Um, I tell people that I got into this industry because there's no way I'll ever know everything about cybersecurity. And so every day I'm learning something new and I encourage everybody to, you know, take the time out during the day and maybe research something that, that you've never researched before and expand that, expand that knowledge base. Um, Absolutely that, agree. That, and, you know, just giving back. I think that most of the people that, that find a position in our industry and go with it, it becomes a passion. And I think it has a lot to do with being able to give back and, and help people. Um, our industry is one of those industries where you're not necessarily dealing with the end consumer all the time, but you're affecting them in some way um, and their lives and their families. So Microsoft, great conversation. Um, so I got introduced to Microsoft in 2005. I had a blog and back when blogs weren't really blogs, they were just text files um, and was talking about the different ways to exploit Microsoft. 
And so I get a call from Redmond, Washington saying, hey, we'd like you to come up and interview for a position. So it was a really, really interesting, interesting time. So I flew up to Redmond, it's during the raining season, get off a plane, and Microsoft had me a rental car, which happened to be a leaky convertible. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. Uh, but what I found really interesting about Microsoft was they were less interested on my knowledge base and more interested in problem solving and the way that my mind worked. I remember going into one of the program manager's offices during the interview and she had a really cluttered office. She looks at me and she says, your only test during this part of the interview is I'm thinking of an object in the room and it's your job to figure out what that object is by asking the least amount of questions. And I thought, wait a minute, am I in the twilight zone? Why, why are they, why are they wanting to know this? Um, but every part of it was kind of like a challenge. Um, you know, lunch, uh, they came and asked me what I like to eat. And I said, well, I'm from Texas, so I, I enjoy steak. So they took me to a vegan restaurant. Um, it was just, <laughs> it seemed like a lot of ways to, to challenge you and, and see how you handle adversity, see how you problem solve, and just the way your mind worked in general. And I'll never forget getting into the self-driving car and going, going from one part of the campus to another with no driver on a schedule for different meetings. And I thought this place is definitely like the movies, like th this is really cool. Um, but I, I joke a lot because I, I tell people Microsoft keeps me employed. Uh, it kept me employed as a pen tester, kept me employed as a security analyst. Um, and the, the job that I went there for was really unique because it was a program manager over code scrubbers. And basically they would scrub the code, come to me, give me the results. And I would decide either to release the code or to put it back in production. And in my young mind at that time, I thought, this is a lose-lose situation. I let it walk out the door, get exploited. Guess who's to blame? I put it back in production. We don't make the release date. Guess who's to blame? So I, you know, at, at the time I, I didn't lose, lose. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was catch 22, you know. So at the yeah. time I, I didn't think that was the route that I should go. But the experience uh it was huge for me because back then, not any, not anybody and everybody was being asked to go to the Redmond campus for, for interviews. And it's a very select place, just like Google and, and Apple. Um, the tech giants tend to be very protective about their processes um, as far as hiring and stuff like that. But I met some brilliant people there and I still, still keep in touch with them. So, you know, knowing Microsoft is a big target in industry and Hackers are always going after Microsoft. And it, yes. granted, you've got some great, great uh, job stability with Microsoft. Um, but what, what is your view? What, what is your take on Microsoft being that huge target along with Apple and, and Google? How does that make you feel? And does that make you lose sleep at night, maybe? Um, I'm lucky to lose sleep at night for other reasons. I deal with autoimmune disease. And so luckily that's my reason for losing sleep. I'm with you on that. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, I don't, I think we, we turned a corner and I think it's really about being effective in terms of, um, it's not a great word to use, but it's actually an effective word. It's hygiene, right? Get right. the fundamentals right. And I think ever since the SDL came out, Adam Shostak's threat modeling came out, ever since all of those processes were put into place and um, people started really kind of paying attention to it, 
like when I came in, it was 2006 when I joined Microsoft. And yeah, I had a puzzle too, and we're not supposed to have puzzles by then anymore. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, when, um, when I joined, uh, I think you're right, the culture was a little more um, competitive and, um, you know, we were a large target and there was just a lot of stress. And I feel like the shift in, in top-down management style and the approach of like, yeah, we're going to make mistakes, but we have to learn from them and continuously grow that whole hit refresh uh, concept. I think it's, it's been growing and we've been evolving with it. And so I feel like um, even from a resource perspective, we have a variety of different people with different types of you know, ways of thinking about things. And when you have that diverse crowd come together and try to problem solve, even in a difficult situation, you find that those solutions start to emerge, um, the options start to emerge quickly. And really that's what you want in any situation. You want options. Yeah, we're always being attacked. I mean, that's just, a, you know, um, a known thing, but then what human is not, right? We've got germs coming at us all the time, right? Not all right. of them are going to end up with us becoming very sick. Um, as long as we know how to adapt and be ready to respond to something that does, mm. that actually puts us in a better place. And we've actually seen how that's happened over the, the last couple of years with the pandemic as well. So I think you could kind of align those two things in some way and kind of look at um, an approach. And I think that approach over time has also come from the fact that as a company, there are leaders that share they're recommended kind of reading with us. So we know what they're thinking about. It's not a secret. It's not something that suddenly gets put down on us. It's like, hey, we've been reading these things. They appear in the MS library. We have our own internal library. And so you can kind of track and read what they're looking at and see their point of view and see how they're looking at our goals and how they're looking at protecting what we have. Some of the things that we thought were important to protect back then, today they're not so relevant. You know, We're opening up, we're becoming, we're embracing open source, we're embracing so many other communities now. And um, we're far deeper into gaming today than we were back in 2005, 2006. So I feel like um, it's important for not just the company to evolve, but for the company to help the resources evolve as well. The humans need to continually evolve. So when I think about um, what are what the attacks are going to look like in the future, I'm I know where we are today, right? But if you plan for today, that's not really proactive. That's just hey, this is the trend. Here's where we are today. That's great. What's the future like? So I think about that a lot, right? I mean, we're so close to quantum computing. Um, we're minutes away, literally, right? <laughs> if you look at the grand scheme of things, um, we're getting closer to more automation, artificial intelligence. Um, you mentioned self-driving cars. What about self-driving cargo trucks and um, planes at some point? Right? We already yeah. use autopilot in flights these days, but there's gonna be so much more of that um, it's interesting. I had a manager for a while. Um, he, since he was my manager, he left the company, became a billionaire with his own startup and then uh, pandemic hit and he found himself working in an Amazon warehouse. So now he's a podcast and he's talking about that whole experience, which I find fascinating wow. because he said in his, uh, in his uh, trailer, he said, um, or is it first episode or trailer? I'm not sure, but he he did mention, he said at some point with all the automation and all the robotics and all the artificial intelligence, Amazon warehouse might end up being the number one job that everybody in the US has at that point. I was like, oh, that's a different way of thinking of life. Like if that were to happen, then what would I do? 
you know, as a disabled person, that's not something I can do. I've got to figure out like then how would I pivot? So I think looking at the future, thinking about every sci-fi outcome possible allows you to just plan ahead and kind of figure out how you're going to pivot in that situation. Yeah, yeah I totally agree The you know, the AI and ML and, and all the, the futuristic type, um, I guess, technology, you know, is not so futuristic. Um, you know, when you look at movies that, that came out in the past, you know, let's take Minority Report for one. Yeah. Um, who, who would have ever thought that we would have those displays where you can guide things with your hands and dig into a database just by a touch? Um, well, I, I did think, because I wanted that. Honestly, yes. I'm lazy. I was yes. like, why do we still have screens? What, where's my hologram people? Where's my where's my hoverboard? I want these things. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm with you on that too. And what's funny is the whole time that I'm watching these movies, I'm thinking that's going to happen one day. Um, I did a talk in London about 1984, uh, the, the actual novel and how it relates to current times and, and what we've seen, how we've surpassed by far what they would have predicted back then. Um, and I started talking to uh, Chris Roberts uh, yesterday about quantum computing and some of the things that, that were on the edge. We're like right on the brink of making some huge discoveries and, and some huge advancements. Um, but I think what is most important and what's going to get us there is something you mentioned earlier, and it's communication and people. Um, all this automation, all the robots and, and technology, it's all great. It's going to help us live a better life and, and give us more free time and more ability to spend time with people. But I think what's most important is communication and relationships, you know, because the, the machines and the code can't build that bridge between people. Yeah, we can, it can provide the technology yeah. in order to get in contact with those people and make that, you know, that possible. But it's those relationships, I think, that are the most important when it comes to advancement in technology. I think the important word, though, is yet. So, yeah. um, I mean, it, it reminds me of that time when uh, there were the two AI that were built by Amazon, I think, and they started talking to each other in their own machine code because mm -hmm. it was just more efficient than using English and people couldn't understand it anymore. So they, you know, like that's the whole thing we have to think about is like if they start to think for themselves, at what, is, at what point are all the thoughts that we have things that um, for us, we have a combination within us of, um, of both the electricity and the chemistry, right? We have the chemicals within us as well. And if we are shifting to organic substances and computing, at what point is it that the robot will also have feelings like us? Like, I think about those movies yeah. too. So when I think about communication, like it, it just takes me back to when I was in high school, Mercy High School, Farmington Hills, Michigan, yay. Um, when I was in high school though, uh, I took a coding class and the first thing the teacher told us is, it's just communicating. It's just a different language. You're just gonna learn how to communicate in a different language. It's exactly. just like class, your Spanish class. This is just this is the grammar. You're going to learn the syntax. You're going to learn how to do things, how to say things. And then the machine's going to do what you tell it to do. And I guess looking at it from such a relaxed perspective allowed me to kind of learn things easier that way, but also look to the future for like, yeah, we're going to communicate with them. We're going to build relationships. 
I mean, I have a relationship with my phone. I don't know how you feel, but I can't put it down. Um, right. If that's not a relationship, I don't know what is. <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, I've, I've got a relationship with my Amazon device sitting here. Um, yeah. It's a love-hate relationship, but you know, <laughs> we, we deal with it day by day. Um, but you, br- you brought up a really interesting point about AI and robots and you know, eventually having feelings, right? So I had this talk with Max Hennemeyer from Dark Trace, and, and I've talked to a couple of people about it. And I think before we get true artificial intelligence and before we can break that, that red tape, I think we have to realize what true consciousness is. Um, mm. And it, it, there's several theories out there. People talk about constructs and, and matrices and, and just a, a vast array of, of theories. Um, but I look at it this way, and it, this is what made technology and computer networks and computers easy for me. Um, when I look at computer networks and computers, I look at human anatomy and systems, you know, the, the nervous system, you know, you have the Ethernet cables that carry the information, which are arteries. And, and I just looked at everything in a medical aspect mm-hmm. um, because like yourself, I, I have autoimmune disease. And I think that is just a sign of our times. I think that's yeah. the environment we live in. Um, but I developed that over the past 10 years. And I also had to have a pacemaker put in, which there's a piece of uh, technology there that, that I had to learn to understand and to be okay with. Um, but I think we're going to see a lot more of those types of advancements, you know, in the near future. I mean, w- we have clothing for the military that is able to take, you know, stats as far as, you know, vitals and, and stuff like that. And that, to me, that type of technology amazes me. And not only does it amaze me, but it gives me hope that, you know, maybe the conditions that we have now, we can live a lot longer with the aid of technology. Um, and I think it's coming. I think we're right there. I agree with you. And I, I hope so. Like I, I'm, I've been looking into exoskeletons and other possible technologies that would enable me to dance again without having to use a cane or sit in a chair because it was so much a part of my life. And I, I taught for a long time. Um, until recently, until the pandemic, actually. Um, and the thing is, I'd love to dance again. Like, who wouldn't? I'd love to run again. I, I used to run six miles a day. It was my thing. I loved it. I'd love to just feel that breeze in my hair as I'm going by, you know? And um, I just have these things in my head that I'd love to experience. I feel like if technology can enable me and anyone else to do those things, if it can en- enable uh, people who can't see to be able to understand what visions look like and people can't hear, be able to understand and enjoy music. I mean, what a great thing we've done. But at the same time, I think about the good side. And then I think about how are we going to misuse that? Because I lived through the early 90s when the first few things came came online after Mosaic. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, the Internet was for porn. And it was not built for it originally, but that's where it went. The you know during those early years, like some of the best developments and advancements in technology were happening with the adult industry. Mm-hmm. Even today in robotics, they are leading the way, right? So um, things are always going to be used in a way that they were not expected to be used, right? Like right. pencil yeah. erasers are supposed to erase pencil marks. We put them in the backs of our earrings when they're falling out, right? I mean, things are always going to be used in a different way. And so from the perspective of like um, security, it's like, how are we going to then make sure that that 
different use of that thing is not going to be abuse, right? Right. How are we going to make sure that's not going to harm somebody? And I, I think it, that that's a really good and valid point. And I think that um, the answer lies with the people who manipulate the technology. I, I tell people in the industry all the time is that instead of blackballing hackers and, and you know not giving them employment or saying they're bad people, how about embracing their culture? Because those are the people who are making the true innovations. You know, the, the term hacker has gotten such a bad negative uh, feel to it because of the media and because of the government. But when you really yeah. look at it, we've always taken devices or technology and tried to manipulate it, you know, not only to do bad things, but to do things to suit what we want them to do or, or a function that we want to happen. And I think if industry would, would embrace that, I guess that mentality and that, that personality a little bit more, um, the sky's the limit as far as innovation goes. I would totally agree. Actually, everybody and everything hacks, right? And, and going back to consciousness, I'm thinking about how just recently certain animals, I think there were some sea animals that were recently uh, deemed to be sent, sentient beings, sentient, is that how you pronounce sentient, it? Sentient, yeah. Sentient beings. So yeah, so that's an interesting thing. Um, because then like, at what point will we decide, yeah, the computer can think and have feelings and, and it has a consciousness. Uh, we haven't decided what that measurement is yet. And we're still even deciding like whether something's a planet or not. So we have a long way to go in terms of measurement and naming things, oh, but. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it reminds me of that. that, that movie, sad, uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. It reminds me of that movie, Her, with oh, yeah. King Phoenix. And he had the relationship with the AI and, and yeah. it was a true relationship. Um, mm -hmm. But that, that stuff always amazes me, you know, and just to think about the interaction um, between a human and an AI. Uh, but I'm really interested in the core fundamentals of, of AI. Like, how do we take Bayes' algorithm and predict future events? Or how do we take technology and determine what's a true level of consciousness? And are we seeing the same thing? You know, because my reality may be completely different than somebody else's. And that's interesting. Perception is uh, there's that theory that everybody has their own reality. I'm just glad that our realities met today. You know, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. It's, uh, we're all living in our own world. That's interesting. I have this other theory though, where uh, we're you know, and I think a lot of people have talked about um, this theory that you know we are in the matrix. You know, mm -hmm. I think about. Like has, are we actually a very, very advanced civilization already? And are we in, are we just the characters inside the game that we're actually playing above? Do you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. So it, it reminds me of <laughs> the first video game that I really got into called Sims. And, you know, everybody knows what Sims is and you can yeah. create houses and families and people. And I would always create the house and the family and, make them destroy each other you know just <laughs> nobody was happy and my civilization broke down um, <laughs> but I, I do think about that and i think about you know reaching out to outer space and, and you know the new the new uh telescope that went into space not too long ago and what we're going to find um you know, it's also just a small component yeah. if you really look at it from this player theory that the player is playing mm -hmm. us as the game then even the multiverse um, is basically part of the game. And how many copies of us are there? 
and exactly. how many how many players are playing this game. It's it's just really fascinating to me to just speculate. <laughs> and and <laughs> like, doppelgangers, yeah. doppelgangers yeah, exactly. too. Like you can take two people that are no, not not related, and I've seen photos of this on. Like, it was a copy sites. paste. It was yeah. a copy paste and then just changed <laughs> a couple things. Yeah. <laughs> right. And I've seen like real world glitches. Like um, there was a video that somebody took of an airplane that literally looked like it was stuck in a lag and it was not moving and things like that. Like it, that wrinkle in time, you know, mm-hmm. it, I'm actually printing Einstein on my 3d printer right now. Um, <laughs> but, you know, just relativity and some of the theories that back then they thought were absolutely insane mm-hmm. that, have been proven. Yes, it, it, it's true. And At least some of that uh, follow science. Yes, I agree. <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's really interesting to look at the potential in the future. And, and when you look at relationships and how those are going to be formed and maintained. Um, and it's been, it's been a really, I guess, focal point for me in the past couple of years because of the pandemic, it took that, that social interaction out of the equation and made it more virtual. And I think it really tested um, people's resilience as far as be able to maintain those relationships through a virtual connection. Um, and I think we're geared towards that. Like you say, we have Amazon that can deliver groceries, whatever we want to get the store. I've been living. Yeah, That's how I've been living. It's all been delivery services. And I'm um, really, I always thank them so much for it because I can't get out there to do my own shopping. So yeah. I mean, but you know, I want to go back to the thing about the hacker um, sure. word. Mm-hmm. I think when we think about hack, we all do it. We've all got little hacks for everything. And in fact, it reminds me of crows because I have a lot of crows outside my balcony I, on the weekends, especially I see them calling and going by all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an old Thummel story about a crow that wanted um, that wanted something, but it was at the bottom of this jar that it couldn't get to. And so the crow couldn't figure out how to get to it, but there was there was water. So it started to put like a bunch of rocks in until it finally rose enough. Oh, it was water. It wanted water, but there wasn't enough. So it threw rocks in. The water rose to that point, then it could finally drink the water. And I was like, you know, that's a hack that, that crow was hacking that jar of water. And that's not a bad thing. So it is, it's just everything we have, we seem to put this good and bad terminology around it, right? So it's it's just it's just energy. Energy can be good and bad. Um, it's just power. Power can be good or bad. It's just money. Money can be good or bad, right? It's the usage of the thing. It's the intent. It's um, are they trying to criminally steal from somebody else? Are they trying to kill someone, harm someone? Um, you know, that is the same, no matter which platform we're in. Are we on earth as what we believe to be real creatures or is it digital or is it going to be in the metaverse? Like the reality is gonna be just kind of trying to deem if that, um, if that thing that we encountered was really supposed to be done with ill intent or not, right? Right, totally agree, I think totally that's, agree. Um, The more we get um, logical about this, I feel like, um, the more likely we'll find alternative solutions to the way that we're doing things. And that's been a real um, thing for me. I like wish that I wish that we weren't a security industry, honestly. Mm. I wish that um, we because basically security is everyone's responsibility. You know, it's not just a few group of people. It's like the law is not the law enforcement officer's responsibility. 
it's everybody's responsibility to follow the laws. And then, you know, they're there to help, you know, whenever situations arise or whatever, you know, some say that they have different experiences with them. I've even had those. That's okay. Um, But the thing is like, they aren't the only ones responsible for making sure that people are safe in society. Just like we are not, we shouldn't be the only ones responsible, but for us to do that, we have to get better at communicating how things work, how they need to be uh, protected, how they can harden their systems, how they can defend their homes, how can they can defend their bank accounts or whatever it is that they need to, um, how the young children can be kept safe in their uh, multiplayer uh, gaming. You know, each, everyone needs to take the burden of that, of that security responsibility on. Um, that's my dream. I want to see everyone get into this industry. I try to like get everybody into cybersecurity. It's like, just, just, you're going to need to, we need you, you know, we do. And the person's like, well, I don't, I don't do anything. Like, that's okay. Do nothing with us because we'll show you how to do things. You know, it's really, really important because everyone has different ideas and thoughts, right? I came out of Detroit. So my perspective is very street smart. And I look at things in a very different way than someone who had a, a nice education and, and kind of came up through the correct method of growing their career. Unlike me, I started in GRC and then I moved backwards into IR, <laughs> going through all the steps in complete reverse order. That's okay. <laughs> you know, that's, it, I come from the same type of background. I don't have an education. Um, I graduated high school, barely graduated high school, and later on down the road, decided to take some college courses and it was all in science. And I have enough hours to have a bachelor's degree but it's all in science so i don't qualify for anything um but But you you do because the thing that's most important is what you learned right if you can use what you learned like i used to complain oh i I told my mentor this the other day i was like you know when i was young i used to be like i'm never going to use math i'm never going to use this why am i learning all of this i'm never going to use it as you know in uh, a tween not even a teen back then when i complained about today i look at that i'm like I went to these classes, right? My social studies teacher, Miss Wyndham, at one point I found a mistake because she was teaching and she said that um, a particular God was a goddess in Hindu tradition. And I was like, no, no, I can tell you the truth. And after class, she took me aside. She's like, look, you can't just yell at the teacher because my responsibility is to teach what what the community tells me I have to teach. Like if the school board says, teach from this book, this is what you do. She said, take your book, Harcourt Brace Jovanovich, write to them, mm-hmm. tell them you found an error, ask them to fix it. This is your job. And I was like, okay. So here I am, a sixth grader <laughs> writing to a textbook company. But that's those are the things we learn along the way. I thought that's like a fluke thing. Oh, I'm doing this thing and I'll fix the book and other people will be happy. It won't matter to me. But no, that that whole taking interest in trying to be accurate and make corrections and reflect on, you know, clear communications create clarity it's one of our principles right so create that clarity and be as accurate as possible that came from Ms. Wyndham at that moment right so like we pick these things up along the way it doesn't have to be from a formal education I still have a lust for formal education I every few years I sign up to do a master's and then I drop out because of my illness but then I try again so I'm trying again right now I'm going to get started again and um, hopefully I'll make it this time we'll see <laughs> that's awesome that's awesome yeah so so Dia tell me about the the culture at Microsoft one of the things that I that I did notice when I went to Microsoft was everybody it, it's kind of an open 
open campus type feel and everybody is is urged to challenge what's in front of them or, or what they know to be true um is it still the same culture you know how yeah. they even had a daycare on campus when i was there I, i'm sure they probably still do but i think a lot just... of the we used to be when i worked in in the california i worked at hotmail when i first started at microsoft in california oh, wow. and Google was across the street and I came, uh, one of my friends went over there and came back and was like, they have pregnancy parking. We don't have pregnancy parking. I was like, wow, you know, like, so yeah, if it was for the perks that that would be interesting in terms of, uh, in terms of um, the culture itself though, I think, yes, because, because what each of us are trying to do, what we're trying to build is not the same thing we already have because that's just the philosophy of what we're trying to do is build tomorrow and to make, to enable more people around the world to be able to achieve their dreams using the software and the services that we put out there and even some of our hardware. So in order to do that, we have to challenge ourselves. You know, I think that the change is that the way in which we challenge one another has shifted. So we do it with respectfulness and empathy now. I think that was a very important thing because I, you know, it, it, it's led to some wonderful um, collaborations within the company that I think we're really benefiting from now. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, uh, I think uh, in a lot of ways, Microsoft gets, you know, uh, the short end of the stick when it comes to reputation. Um, you know, I, I look at some of the products coming out of Microsoft and, you know, they're great products. I think where I've seen the gap is people don't necessarily understand the technology. They don't, necessarily follow the right steps to protect it. Um, one of the things as a pen tester that, that used to drive me crazy is going to, you know, a, a campus or, or doing a pen test and seeing vulnerabilities in, in Microsoft networks from like 10 years ago. Um, but it's not Microsoft's fault. They put out patches. You know, it, it's, it's legit. Problem is people don't know how to advance their networks along with the technology. So that's a really great uh, gap that you've identified, and that is um, the the ability for people to actually act on the fixes that we're putting out there. Right? Um, it's it's challenging. It really is. Like I think you remember when WannaCry happened, we actually right. went back and provided uh, updates on um, platforms that we don't support anymore. And I think it's important in some cases to do that because of the vital situations in which those particular customers were still leveraging old software. But at the same time, like, um, you know, we do what other companies do too, right? You've got the same problem with upgrades that need to happen with software that, you know, is not even on Windows, like Linux software. There's so many older versions that people are using for whatever reason. I mean, we have that problem. It's a fundamental hygiene problem. Um, and it's sort of um, something that I, I used to make my soapbox when I was in TVM. I used to always talk about like, you guys need to patch this stuff. Now I'm looking at it and I'm wondering like, um, so the root cause of some of that was uh, that there were flaws in the software that was produced and delivered. And so how do, how do those flaws get prevented from being introduced, right? Um, but there's only so much you can do there also. So like the kind of root cause thinking that I have that kind of drives me, mm. it's kind of making me 
and this is actually why I've talked to different universities to try to figure out where I should go next in terms of learning, because it's like, how do we come up with that picture of that root cause that we can actually address that will really have that ripple effect Mm -hmm. and make us stop playing this whack-a-mole game. We've Mm -hmm. built entire processes and um, we've built entire, you know, um, I don't know, we've built an entire industry around just patching if you think about it, right? right? Is there a better way? We don't know right now because we've tried doing things on behalf of the customer. They don't want that. They want the control. Um, Vista is a great example where we put so many things in place and they just, it didn't work for the user. The user wants their freedom, but then how do you defend their systems while they want their freedom as well, which is an interesting thing. Um, And in fact, my role right now, I'm in IR and I work for an organization, um, that does manage desktops for enterprises. So it's Microsoft Managed Desktop. I actually love this role. I get to talk to our external customers sometimes. I get to help them with um, different issues that are coming up. We have a SOC team. We're also building out our blue team really nicely. It's it's just super uh, fun to do this because this is that partnership that fills that gap. So they could go with a third party to manage those desktops, right? Or they could manage them themselves. But then if they need this and that and that for Microsoft, then they need that third party to come and find Microsoft and whatever. In this case, they're just talking to us. We'll go talk to our friends and figure it out and come back and help them, which I think is, it has its its uh, charm to it. It's a little bit more cost-effective for those folks, I think, in the long run. Um, I hope it is. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, absolutely. Yeah, and I think that's that's really cool too, to, to think of Microsoft as, as having a sock and a blue team and, and, you know, the things that everybody else has in the industry. But I think where, where the industry fails, like you said, uh, it's a battle of patching, but I look at it a little bit differently. So I, I look at the mistakes left in code as an opportunity, right? Yeah. So it, to, to me, it's, it's an opportunity to find those, those little hidden gems, exploit them, and when the patch comes out, guess what? That that software package or that technology has just gone through a micro innovation stage. Um, and every time that happens, yeah, we all learn lessons, but it also advances the technology as well. It um, does. You know, with, does. without without those flaws, I, I don't think that we would be where we're at in technology. To be honest with you. I think you're right. Um, it's it's interesting. Lance um, Spitzner from Sands. Mm-hmm. He Uh, teaches, I think, security awareness. And he put out a really cool chart at one point that I've seen, and I I love it. It actually looks at the Windows OS, and it looks at all the different things we've put in place since, I think, 2005 or something. And it's just a chart that shows how much harder and harder it is to actually pop the system, which I I love because we've put a lot of really cool new um, techniques in place to defend the system for the customer. And I think that matters. We need to look at doing more of that. Um, but there's always going to be the freedom to do what you want to on these systems. And today it's fine. It's just a laptop. It's just a server. What's it going to be when it's inside your body? That's What's my biggest fear. When it's, um, you know, in your transportation, your only mode of transportation, you're inside with a hundred other people in this new mode of transportation. And it's going at, you know, unheard of speeds today because we now have cooler transportation a hundred years or 10 years from now, even um, what's it going to be then? Like what, how much will 
will we tolerate having a company go ahead and fix things for us before before something bad happens, right? You know, I, I think that at that point, you talk about freedom, security, and having control. And I think that when it gets to the point where it's that critical, I think some of those freedoms and controls will probably be taken away, to be honest with you. I think that those systems will react. I mean, it, just look at the pandemic as an example. How yeah. are people going to react to being told you don't have this freedom anymore? It's it doesn't go over well. No, it, it doesn't. But it, I think it takes that painful, painful situation to be able to revolutionize the way that we do things. I mean, look at the way the U.S. was was founded and and formed. Um, That was a lot of pain and and struggle and, you know, a lot of good things came out of it. But sometimes I I feel like in order to grow as a person, I have to go through that pain or, or, or that struggle in order to get to the other side and go, hey, you know what? I did it this way. It worked this way. And this is the lessons I learned along the way. And I think as a civilization, we need to stop looking at uh, the environment that we live in as a state or as a community or as yeah. a micro-segmented piece of reality. We, we all are one, really, and what we do affects everybody. And I think that when, when we get to that mentality where we can embrace that, I think things will change drastically without that much struggle and pain. It's true, but we also have to take into account that everything is not one size fits all. Right. And there are there are underrepresented communities in technology. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Until their voices are part of our solution, we're not solving for everyone. The distance between the haves and the have-nots, once the metaverse is really where we start to live and work, that's going to grow bigger than we've ever realized unless, and this was another part of the conversation I had with another friend is like, um, what if we're, how are we going to project people that, for example, are homeless or mm-hmm. poverty stricken? Are we going to project them into the metaverse? Cause that's just where all humans are going to be. Or is there going to be an outside world and an inside world? What's going to happen? Um, and so part of how those decisions get made and making sure that everyone's voice, like uh, enough people from the, communities that are not widely represented enough of those voices are part of the conversation there's enough dissent and dissent doesn't mean just get angry and walk away it means have the conversations understand with empathy why somebody thinks the opposite of you right and absorb that internalize it understand live in their shoes for a minute and see what that feels like and then and then start to think about how do you construct around that? Because we're building a community, we're building a neighborhood or a new world, right? And then we are also going to have to abstract away from things we're used to. We're used to countries, we're used to languages, we're used to differences. That's going to be hard too, because I don't think humans want to be the same. I think they want to be different. Um, we see it because even in in America, we've self-segregated into communities by ethnicity in a lot of places, right? So I think people want to have those cultural differences, which is great. So how do we account for that in our planning? And so, and I don't, I'm not at all assuming that I'm one of the planners, but I'm saying that, you know, these are whatever those decisions are that get made, the trickle-down effect is going to be how do we protect all these people, all the people, not just the ones that fit 
the uh, terms of that decision and what that future looks like. So right, and I, I've I've talked to a lot of uh, groups and a lot of individuals who are spearheading that change, which is fantastic. Um, uh, Black Girls Hack um, is a great group that you know they. Oh, I love that group. They support yeah. a lot of the uh, diversity and and really support people in the community, and uh, blacks and cyber. Um, <laughs> the the work that they do, I, you probably see me reposting all their posts. I just think it's amazing what they do for. Oh, I love what it does. They're fantastic. I I think I definitely want to get more involved in helping them. I I just. Uh, Mentoring is probably the one most important thing that if you're in cybersecurity, no matter what level, no matter what it is your job is, everyone needs to be mentoring. We all need to be bringing more people in. We need to be getting more of those diverse folks into our environment. We need to build this world out the way it's supposed to look. Otherwise, all our data science, all our AI, it's all going to be very, very one-sided, even gender perspective, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we're still not even at 50%. We're not even at 30% yet. Um, and so it's it's a real passion of mine that we bring more people in. In fact, on my team, we have a, a small group of us that are focused on kind of changing those job descriptions so we can describe things in a more attractive way. And so people don't self-select out of a possible role because they're like, well, I don't have those skills, right? Um, How do we write the job descriptions in a more attractive way? How do we have mixers and, um, you know, events that help expose what are the things that we do so that people who are interested can come and get to talk to us and learn about those things and say, you know what, I'm going to throw my hat in. I'm going to try this. We need to make those gates a little more open than they are right now. And we need to, you know, we're going to be exacting. We're going to be accurate. We're going to do what we need to do. Anyone can learn all of that. But that passion, that interest, that desire to do it, that's the one thing we need to be very good at identifying in a person and then get everything out of the way so that person can be brought in. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I agree. Um, And sitting here thinking about, you know, the diversity and and metaverse and, and, are we going to exclude certain types of people or certain, you know, segments of the population? It reminds me of a a funny movie I watched recently with Ryan Reynolds. I can't remember the name of it, but he was basically playing a character in a game. Um, And they had different, different people. And at the end of the game, they just got tired of the bullshit and they revolted. And it was really quite cool to watch that. Wow. simulation game you have to watch it. i can't remember the name of it, it you need to start posting Rome. your movies you need to start yeah. posting a list of movies mike <laughs> I, I, I do watch a lot of film um i actually just recently started with Alyssa knight uh, doing writing screenplays for her short films oh awesome which i, I love her i yeah, love her she's Capital awesome Rome. she's yeah, amazing she, yeah i had her on the podcast last year and um, we hit it off and, and uh, I started working with her and it's been an amazing ride so far. I'm doing things okay. that are, is completely out of my comfort zone. Uh, I'm not a writer. I'm not by any means creative in that way. But now I'm starting to learn that maybe that's a hidden skill that I didn't know I had. Um, but, it, you know, I try to learn something every day and step outside my comfort zone and experience new things. And I think that's really important in the industry because it's really easy to get locked into a, uh, a job or, or a type of job in cybersecurity and never get out of it. Um, I think that it's important to learn all aspects. Like I did, I did red team before I did blue team and now I'm running an, an MDR. Um, you know, so it, it diversity in the workplace 
with people as well as diversity with the types of jobs you take. Yeah, experiences, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, going from, you know, going from PM to engineering is a change. Going from, like, I did that and I didn't think I'd ever do it, but I was so excited when I finally made that switch. Um, and then going from, you know, uh, even in PM, working in an organization that just does email, Hotmail, and then going into looking at all the online services and what do they need to do before release to keep, you know, their, their users protected. There's that. And then going from that into anti-malware, working for Defender Team, right? And going from that to threat and vulnerability management. Of course, I left the company in between for a second, which was super fun, but also not my thing. I need to come back. <laughs> you know, sometimes you just need to have these other experiences because, you know, you don't know light if you don't know dark. You don't know... Um, you don't know uh, the character characteristic of something if you don't know the opposite of it. In a sense, you kind of need to have the yin and the yang. Yeah. And at any given time, you'll find that I'm learning something I totally don't know. Like right now, I'm really struggling with um, Sanskrit letters because I never knew how to read it. I can I understand it quite well, but I never knew how to read it. And for some reason, it's just something appealing to me. And while I'm doing that, I'm like, well, how does that relate to Latin? So that's being brushed up at the same time, which is interesting. Yep. Um, during the pandemic, I wanted to practice something. So I picked ukulele. That seemed easy enough for someone with arthritis. So um, yeah, I've been doing songs. I've been doing ukulele quite well. It's been really fun. Gosh. And I can now do a whole bunch of really cool songs and things now. So, um, and, and, you know, it's about just constantly being entertained by yourself yeah. Uh, because the more you know and the more you understand then when you're put in a situation where all of a sudden you're on this team and this team does something you've never done before and you have to secure their releases it becomes more it, there's less ramp time because you can kind of grok it and go oh this reminds me of this this reminds me of that I mean, that's really the best way to kind of transition into cybersecurity, right? Is to be able to ask a lot of questions and then see what people are doing and go, this sounds like that. This sounds like that. Do that pattern matching. Yep. And if you can pattern match and help people see what you know in the context of what they're looking for, that's the route in. And the thing is, if you never stop trying to know more things, then you connect with way more people and that leads to way more collaboration way way more understanding and empathy and ultimately it helps us keep people secure more absolutely and i like to say the more you know the more you grow um, yes. so I, I i try to stick to that so last thought before we close it down um someone coming into the industry what would be your key piece of advice for anybody coming in I would say um, to really just become a sponge and absorb everything. Try to understand. Um, try to understand what the big picture looks like. Uh, if you're if you're going to be in security, try to understand what all the different domains are. What are all the different roles? How do they relate to the different domains? And try to see what you like. And that's I think what a lot of people don't do. They don't think about what they like to do. They think about I need to learn this so I can get into DFIR so I can do this, right? Um, instead of that, think about what are you naturally drawn to? What do you naturally really like to do? And you'll find there's something in security, something in cybersecurity, infosec, whatever we call it these days, 
you'll um, find there's something in there that's actually aligned with what you enjoy. And it, it, it's going to be a perfect fit for you. Then, then you build that um, space as kind of your niche. But at the same time, while you're building that niche, learn other things, try other jobs. Um, you know, I remember once when I was a PM, a manager said to me, cause I was complaining about ops. They were like, why don't you go work in ops? So I was like, okay. So I flipped roles and I worked in ops and I was like, then complaining about dev. And I was like, okay, I get it now. So if you don't do the other job, you won't know what, <laughs> you know, why they do what they do. And I think um, asking why is super helpful. Um, ask why things are the way they are before you just do them and ask um, how long they've been this way, because we'll find things, even protocols are super old. Why are they still there, right? Why have we not updated them? Why are these gaps that we've had for so long not um, been looked at? And so it's it's sort of like um, you're joining a cleaning crew and you're going in a house that really, really needs a deep clean. That's really what security is. So you're going to find things around the corner, get the duster ready and get going, you know? That's <laughs> I awesome. think that's how I would approach it. Yeah, I like I like that uh, that analogy definitely, and it ties in with. Uh, I kept thinking Bluetooth stack. It's been like thirty years and it's still the same. Um, yeah. yeah, it was great having you on. Thanks for for taking the invite and jumping on here. Um, I knew we'd have a great conversation. I I can look at people's LinkedIn and kind of gauge how we'll fit together. And I you know looking at your your resume and, and the things you put out there, it's definitely positive and, and challenging. Um, and it definitely was a great conversation. So come back anytime and, and, you know, I, I hope you do well and, and I hope you stay safe and healthy and thank you. You as well. You as well, Mike. Thanks. Absolutely. All right. Talk to you guys soon.